You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So last week we started looking at this period of history called the 400 silent years. It's quite heavy lifting because it's history and I know a lot of history for some people is just dates and numbers and it's quite hard to take it all in. But you've got to look at the big picture of what we're doing here. I'm hoping that as we move into the time of the Gospels, this background information will be really beneficial to you. So we're going to finish off the period known as the 400 silent years this morning. But let me just pray and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, we'd ask now as we just turn our hearts to look at this, to look at your word, but also to look at the history, Father, that your sovereign hand has been guiding to bring us up to the time of the Gospels. We'd ask that you'd speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So we were looking at the 400 silent years. This is known as the period from the end of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, the last prophet, until the arrival of John the Baptist on the scene. There was about 400 years of history in between those two events, from what we would call the Old Testament to the New Testament. And they're called the silent years because there was no prophet of God speaking, but actually there was huge amounts of things that happened during those years. We began last week by reading this verse. I'll read it to you again. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive the adoption as sons. So this tells us that the fullness of time, the appointed time, the set time, meaning the exact time that God had prepared for his Son to be born into this earth 2,000 years ago. And hopefully this background will help us understand some of this. These are not just irrelevant historical details. These are actually part of, if you have this verse in your mind, you'll see that these are part of God's divine preparation for the arrival of his son into this earth, which, of course, is the most monumental event that has happened in human history. So if you remember last time, the Old Testament ends with the empire, the Persian Empire, ruling the Middle East at that time. And we mentioned last week, if you remember, that was the time that we saw the rise of the synagogue which was the centre of Jewish worship in all the local towns where they had been distributed away from Jerusalem. And we saw how influential that was because when we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus and the apostles going around preaching in these synagogues all the time. And then after that, the Persian Empire gave way to this man. I showed you this picture, Alexander the Great, here from a rising empire in the West. Obviously, that's not Alexander the Great. I won't explain again. Hopefully, you're all with me on that. He ended up spreading the empire, the Greek empire, over the known world at that time in an extremely short period of time. He was one of the world's greatest military leaders because of his success. And I shared with you that famous story that as he was on his way to conquer Jerusalem, the high priest at the time went out in a priestly procession in their white robes to meet him. And they met Alexander and they showed him the prophecies in the book of Daniel that actually talked about Alexander the Great and the Greece Empire taking over the kingdom of Persia. And he then thought, well, that's talking about me. And from that day on, he was very favorable to the Jewish people throughout his empire. And they had a lot of success in ease and actually insisted that they go and settle in various areas of his empire. Uh, The main place being the city that he founded in Egypt called Alexandria, named after Alexander the Great. And 
We talked a little bit about that, the famous library that they had there, the copy of the Bible that was translated, the Greek Septuagint for that library, which is a very important Bible translation, the first translation ever of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, which, because of Alexander, was the language of the world at that point. Much like English is today, you find people speaking English in most places, Greek was the language of the day, and that's why they needed the Scriptures in Greek. That's also why the New Testament was written in Greek. God had prepared that the whole area, the cradle of civilization, as they call it in the Middle East there, was all speaking one language at this time, because that obviously helps when people are going out from one place spreading this message of the gospel. It was all one language. Now, after Alexander died, and in fulfillment of the prophecies we find in the book of Daniel, his empire was carved up between his four generals, if you remember that. There were two of them in particular that were really the ones we, we need to look at. If you remember the reign of Ptolemy in the south, he took Egypt and those areas in the red there, and a man, a general named Seleucid, he took the areas in the north, in the larger empire there in the north. And basically, the history of Israel from this time until the time of the New Testament is these two empires fighting each other for more territory, and Israel there being the small, thin strip stuck in the middle of these two empires. And this is basically what we're going to look at today. So this kind of brings us to where we stopped last week, so let's move forward now and look at these two empires in a little bit more depth. Let's look at the Seleucids there, the people in the north, because they have a very interesting history that's very relevant to the New Testament. The general Seleucid, he was one of Alexander's main generals, he founded the famous city of Antioch, which is up in Syria kind of area on the map. And if you know the New Testament at all, you'll know that Antioch is a very important city for the early church and for the Jewish community. Let me read to you from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. And some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And then in the same chapter, verse 25, it says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, I find that very interesting because this is the term that we use today, don't we? Everyone knows Christians, Christianity. That is the general, most popular term for Christians. It wasn't actually the In the early church, they just called them followers of the way, but it wasn't until Paul and Barnabas set up the church really there in Antioch that people started calling them Christians. So here we see this most common term started in this city founded by one of Alexandra's four generals during these silent years. Now from here on in, things get extremely messy with the history, and I'll be honest with you, I spent a lot of time reading these sources, and it's, it's very hard to follow There's people killing each other left, right, and center. There's poisoning, there's plots, there's double crosses, and all sorts of things like that. It's exciting and messy, and we're going to try and simplify it to keep you all with us, looking at just the main characters as we go through. But it is important to see why, when you're reading the New Testament, the Jews from Jerusalem don't trust the Jews from the Greek Empire, why you see the divide between the Jews and the Gentiles why they could hate you. We read it and we think, how could they hate each other so much that they weren't even allowed to step on that piece of land 
we're going to look at some of the history now to show you why they hated each other so much uh, during this time. The Seleucid Empire was in charge of Antioch. Sorry, actually, I had a couple of pictures here of Antioch. That was the ancient city of Antioch. It's actually quite a well-preserved city. You can go there today and see some of the ruins still in Antioch, but we'll come back to that as we work our way through the New Testament. So the Seleucid Empire. And you remember Alexander the Great. He wanted to turn the whole empire, he wanted to Hellenize the world, as we call it. Hellenize is the world that means spread Greek culture. He considered it the best. But Alexander allowed the Jews to continue being their distinct people because he was favorable to them because of that story and other reasons. However, his successors did not share quite such a favorable view of the Jewish people at this time, and they started to push Greek culture, Hellenism, in a much more serious and worrying way at this time. So they started to do this, and this caused a division amongst the Jewish people because within the ruled people of Israel, there were certain Jews who liked what the Greeks were doing, and they said, yeah, this is the way the world is going. We need to get on board. We need to follow the crowd, and let's accept everything that the Greeks give us and they were called the Hellenistic party. And then amongst them, there were those who were like, nope, this is not what the Jewish nation was called to do. We need to stand against this. We need to continue to be distinct and live by our own laws. And they were called the Hasidim, or the pious ones. And those two groups there are the, the roots, the foundation of the two groups we see in the New Testament called the Sadducees and the Pharisees. This is how they started, because of this history going on here. Now, the most famed, famous Seleucid ruler was a man we've talked about recently for our Hanukkah study, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was probably the most famous one of all. We've talked a lot about this man. You'll find him again talked about in the book of Daniel, his prophecies about this man. And one of the first things this man did when he took charge of this area is he took charge of the high priesthood in Jerusalem. So you know in Israel, at the temple in Jerusalem, they had this hereditary line of priests going back to Aaron, and they had to be a descendant of Aaron to be ordered to have that office, according to the Bible. This all changed now at this moment, and it affects what we read in the New Testament too. He deposed the Jewish priest, the high priest, who was the last hereditary descendant, a man named Ananias, and he put his own man on the throne, a guy called Jason. Now, Jason, of course, was a man who was in favor with the Greeks. He would do whatever Antiochus said, and he was now put in charge of the religious establishment of Israel. So basically what has happened here, the high priesthood became a political commodity that would be bought and sold to the highest bidder by the ruling empire, the Greeks, at this time and that was Antiochus at this moment. Now, I find this interesting, because this, is, this continued for years and years and years, right up until we see in the New Testament, it's still operating in that way. The religious establishment, to stay in power with the dominant empire, had to compromise with the culture. And you're going to see that happen quite a lot as we go through the New Testament and through this book. So I can't help but make the observation, and I don't want to talk bad about uh, any other parts of the church, but much of what we call the established church... I see today many of the debates and the councils that they're having are simply kind of playing the same thing happening here. In order to try and keep their position as the state or the established church, they're debating a lot of the things that the culture is being pushed on them, and they're trying to decide whether we need to accept them or go along with it. For me, it's just an exact replaying of exactly the issues they would have had to face when Antiochus was in charge, and he was saying, you can't do this, you can do that, we need you to do this. 
and the chief priests were trying to make a decision, do we do it or not? And off, a lot of people said no, some said yes. We have this in the Anglican Church. And then you have the GAFCON group from, who have separated from the Anglican Church because they don't like this. And it's the same sort of thing going on. This, unfortunately, is what happens when religion mixes in that way with power and empire. But that's just a, an aside thought, not for the history here. Now, Antiochus gives the priesthood who is ever to whoever is willing to pay and willing to toe the line. Now, at this point, the Jews who opposed this, the pious ones, the Hasidim, as they were called, they really developed into a resistance movement, and they, like I said, they became what we know as the Pharisees. And doctrinally, they were the ones that were more interested in what the law said. When we meet Paul, he was a Pharisee. And you ever wonder why Paul would be so radical that he would go around persecuting Christians and throwing them in prison? As you get through some of this history, you'll find that the Sadducees, or the ruling party, they hated the Pharisees. The Pharisees had the popular, the ground support on the grassroots level. The Sadducees had the establishment and the support of the Greeks. And they would often persecute the Pharisees. And one time they even held a banquet for them. They seduced like, like 800 of them to come in. And then they crucified them all publicly in front of them. Things like this were going on in that world that we miss when we, if you don't have this history. That is why there was such tension in the, in the New Testament days between these two groups. There was just They'd been fighting like this for a long time. And it's, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. But that's the background to those two New Testament groups. Now, in order to really help you understand the history leading up to the Gospels, the arrival of Jesus, I'm going to read to you now a lengthy portion from the book of 2 Maccabees. 2 Maccabees is one of these Jewish books that was written during this time in between the Old and New Testament. And it basically will tell you show you what I mean about the high priest being sold and all the maneuvering that went on between these two people and just how cruel a ruler uh, Epiphanes was. So this is from the book of 2 Maccabees, chapter 6. It said, it goes, Seleucus died, so that's Alexander's main general. And when Antiochus, surnamed Epiphanes, succeeded him to the throne, Anias's brother Jason obtained the high priesthood by corrupt means. In an interview, he promised the king 360 talents of silver, as well as 80 talents from another source of income. And besides this, he would undertake to pay 150 more if he was given authority to establish a gymnasium and a youth center for it and enroll the Jerusalemites as citizens of Antioch. So basically, he went to Antiochus and he said, I'll take the high priest over. Here's my money. I'm going to be loyal to you. Just let me put this gymnasium. Gymnasiums in ancient Greece were not the nicest of places. This is where they practiced for their Olympic Games. There was a lot of things going on there that were not good, and this was a very good way to sort of get people into the Greek way of thinking and the Greek way of life. He goes on, when Jason received the king's approval and came into the office, he immediately initiated his compatriots into the Greek way of life. With perverse delight, he established a gymnasium, uh, at the very foot of the citadel, where he included the noblest young men to wear the Greek hat. The craze for Hellenism and the adoption of foreign customs reached such a pitch through the outrageous wickedness of Jason, the renegade, the would-be high priest, that the priests no longer cared about the service of the altar. Disdaining the temple and neglecting the sacrifices, they hastened at the signal for the games to take part in the unlawful exercises at the arena. And what their ancestors had regarded as honor they despised. What the Greeks esteemed as glory, they prized highly. For this reason, they found themselves in serious trouble. 
The very people whose manner of life they emulated and whom they desired to imitate in everything became their enemies and oppressors. It is no light matter to flout the laws of God, as subsequent events will show. Three years later, Jason sent Menelaus, brother of the aforementioned Simon. Don't worry about all these different people. That's why it gets hard to follow, because there are so many half-brothers and brothers and everything like that. But we'll just look at the main people. So the high priest sends, Jason sends his, this guy Menelaus to try and make a deal, to deliver money to the king and complete negotiations and urgent matters. But after his introduction to the king, he flattered him with such an air of authority that he secured the high priesthood for himself, outbidding Jason by 300 talents. So you understand what he's done there. He said, yep, I'll deliver that message to the king. Just give me the money. He gives him the money. He goes to the king. He pays him for the money and says, I want the high priesthood. And this is how it goes. And Antiochus says, fine, I'll take your money. You're now the high priest. The other one's gone. And that is how the high priesthood was operating at this time. Verse 32, he carries on. Uh, Menelaus, for his part, thinking this is a good opportunity, stole some gold vessels from the temple and presented them to Andronicus, who he had already sold other vessels entire in the neighboring cities. And when Aeneas had clear evidence, he accused Menelaus publicly after withdrawing to the inviolable sanctuary at Daphne, near Antioch. And thereupon Menelaus approached Andronicus privately and urged him to seize Aeneas. So Andronicus went to Aeneas, treacherously reassuring him by offering his right hand in oath and persuaded him, in spite of his suspicions, to leave the sanctuary. And then with no regard for justice, he put him to death. So here, the, the high priests who have bought the high priesthood want to just make sure that the original high priest who was deposed, who actually is the hereditary heir to the high priesthood, he can't ever get it back. So they say, come and... They get him to go somewhere private, and then they assassinate him. Now, that is what was going on, and that is the end of the hereditary high priest in that area. And then it says, About this time, Antiochus sent his second expedition into Egypt. But when a false rumor circulated that Antiochus was dead, Jason gathered at least a 1,000 men and suddenly attacked the city. So... Jason was the high priest who was first put in by Antiochus, but was betrayed by the guy Menelaus, who stole the high priesthood from him. And because Antioch agreed to that, Jason couldn't do anything about it. So Jason, he hears a false rumor that Antiochus had been killed trying to conquer Egypt. And he thinks, now's my chance. He gathers together all the faithful troops that he has, and he marches back to take back the high priesthood. This is what's going on here. Unfortunately, the rumor was not true. It says, as the defenders on the walls were forced back and the city was finally being taken, Menelaus took refuge in the citadel. And for his part, Jason continued the merciless slaughter of his fellow citizens, not realizing that triumph over one's own kin is the greatest calamity. He thought he was winning a victory over his enemy, not over his own people. And when these happenings were reported to the king, who wasn't dead, he thought that Judea was in revolt. And raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom he met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of young women and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. Not satisfied with this, the king dared to enter the holiest temple in the world. Menelaus, that traitor, both to the laws and to his country, served as a guide. Now, you see Menelaus here. This is, when you read the New Testament, and you see why the Jewish Pharisees hate the Jewish tax collectors. 
because the tax collectors are working for the Roman government. And this is the kind of thing that you see going on here, because it was their own people, really, who were taking these positions and in league with the Greek government, selling them all out, allowing them to be massacred. All of this leads to this tension that we see in the New Testament, because this is 100, 100, just over 100 years before that period, so it's still very fresh in their memory. This is what's going on. So the king entered the temple. He laid his impure hands on the sacred vessels, swept up with the profane hands the votive offerings, and made other kings for the advancement, the glory, and the honor of that place. Not long after this, the king sent an Athenian senator to force the Jews to abandon the laws of their ancestors and live no longer by the laws of God. Basically, Antiochus has had enough of all this going on with the priesthood, the temple, and it was causing unrest in his city, and his empire, so he comes down, he sweeps, he kills everyone, and he's fed up now, and he starts being like, right, we're going to get rid of all the Jews. You're not allowed to do this anymore. He says, abandon the laws of their ancestors, live no longer according to the, the laws of your God. He profaned the temple in Jerusalem, and he dedicated it to the Olympian god Zeus. The Gentiles filled the temple with debauchery and revelry. They amused themselves with prostitutes in the sacred courts, they had brought forbidden things into the temple so that the altar was covered with abominable offerings prohibited by the laws. No one could keep the Sabbath or celebrate the feasts, nor even admit to being a Jew. And moreover, the monthly celebration of the king's birthday, the Jews, from bitter necessity, had to partake of the sacrifices he suggested, and when the festival of Dionysus was celebrated, they were compelled to march in his procession wearing wreaths of ivy." So this was the, the festivals of Dionysus, which was a, a god that was associated with sexuality and all sorts of things like that. They had temples and prostitutes. They would have a march when they celebrated it through the city, which, and it was a proud day for the city, and everyone would come out, and they would force the Jews, rather, to march in it at this time. Again, the world has not changed huge amounts. He goes on, following upon a vote of the citizens of Ptolemaeus, a decree was issued ordering the neighboring Greek cities to adopt the same measures, obliging the Jews to partake of the sacrifices, putting to death those who would not consent to adopt the customs of the Greeks. Now, you may remember some of this from our Hanukkah study. This is leading up to the Maccabean era, the revolt. We'll briefly go over that. I won't do it again because we did it a few uh, while back for Hanukkah. But I feel this is just important. I know this is history that seems a little far away when we're talking about Jesus. This is not nice stuff. But this is the world that Jesus was ultimately born into. So it's important that we understand the animosity that we see here between all these different groups. And to give you an idea of just how cruel, and some of this might, if you're squeamish, I apologize for this. You might want to not listen to some of this. But I'm going to read to you another chapter now from the book of Maccabees. I want to just get you to understand what Antiochus, there was a reason they nicknamed him the Mad One in the ancient world, because he was such a tyrant. There's a famous Jewish story about a mother and her seven sons. This mother is down as one of the faithful martyrs in Jewish, almost legendary status in Jewish history because of this event with Antiochus. And like I said, remember, Antiochus was fed up now. He was done with the Jewish people. He was trying to eradicate them. They couldn't have their laws. They couldn't be circumcised. They couldn't even tell people they were a Jew because you could just get killed if you were doing that at this time. And there's this famous story now in 2 Maccabees chapter 7. It says, It also happened that seven brothers with their mother were arrested and tortured with whips and scourged by the king to force them to eat pork in violation of God's law. And one of the brothers, speaking for the others, said, What do you expect to learn by questioning us? 
we are ready to die rather than transgress the law of our ancestors. And at that, the king, in a fury, gave orders to have pans and cauldrons heated. These were quickly heated, and he gave an order to cut out the tongue of the one who had spoken for the others to scalp him and cut off his hands and his feet, while the rest of his brothers and his mother looked on. And when he was completely maimed but still breathing, the king ordered them to carry him to the fire and fry him. As a cloud of smoke spread from the pan, the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die nobly. After the first brother had died in this manner, they brought the second to be made sport of. After tearing off the skin and the hair of his head, they asked him, will you eat the pork rather than have your body tortured limb by limb? Answering in the language of his ancestors, he said, never, so in turn suffered the same torture as the first. After him, the third suffered their cruel sport. He put forth his tongue at once when told to do so and bravely stretched out his hands. And as he spoke these noble words, it was from heaven that I received these for the sake of his laws, I disregard them. From him, I hope to receive them again. And even the king and his attendants marveled at the young man's spirit because of the, his regard for suffering. I won't read the rest of the... Basically, that, they go through. That happens to all of this woman's seven sons. And then it says, most admirable and worthy of everlasting remembrance was the mother who, seeing her seven sons perished in a single day, bore it courageously because of her hope in the Lord, filled with that noble spirit that stirred her reason and emotion. She exhorted each of them in the language of their ancestors with these words, I do not know how you came to be in my womb. my womb. It was not I who gave you breath and life, nor was it I who arranged the elements you are made of. Therefore, since it is the creator of the universe who shaped the beginning of humankind and brought about the origin of everything, he, in his mercy, will give you back breath of life because now you disregard yourselves for the sake of his law. Last of all, after her sons, the mother was put to death. Now, and this is common. This is what the ancient Near East was like at that time, these sorts of things. I could give you many, many examples of these sorts of histories going on. Now, do you understand why the Jews hated the Gentiles? That was, this is what carries over into the time of the New Testament. And this actually even carries over past the New Testament, because into the time of why Jewish people have such a distrust of Christianity today too, because most of the Christian church ended up being Gentile and these things carried on throughout history. Now hopefully with our Revelation study, we can peer behind the veil now. This is horrible history to read. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 12, when we read about, we, we were given that glimpse behind the curtain of what's going on in the world, and we had that picture of Satan, the dragon, and it said that he persecuted the woman Israel, he hated Israel because Israel was God's covenant people who would bring the Messiah into the world. This is why he was trying to kill the Jewish people. Antiochus is talked about in the Bible as a picture of the Antichrist. He's a type of this final world leader who will come. And what did this guy want to do? He wanted to destroy the Jewish people. Now, he probably didn't know he was trying to stop the Messiah, but Satan knew the energy, the power behind this, and this is what is going on behind the scenes. So you have to read history, all of history, you need to see through the eyes of our worldview. This is basically what was going on at this time. It's brutal, it's severe, and that's it. And the final straw, this was really the final straw. As we read there, Antiochus commanded all of the Greek, his soldiers, to go to all the towns around Israel and all these Greek cities, set up an altar and make sure everyone's towing the line with what I'm saying. And they went to one town called Moadin, in this little sort of village on the outskirts of Israel, and they set up their altar and they said, you make your tribute to Zeus and you'll all be fine and we'll move on to the next town. And there was obviously a faithful family in that town called the Maccabean family, the Hasmon, Hasmonon family, and they were not going to do this. 
However, there was plenty of Jews who wanted to please the Greeks, and they stepped up and they did this. And at that moment, there was one faithful man called Matthias, a God-fearing priest, and he was so enraged by this act that he leapt forward, he destroyed the altar, killed the Jew who offered the sacrifice to Zeus, and then he killed the Syrian soldiers too. And this started what we know as the Maccabean Revolt. He did that famous war cry, you who are with me and the laws of God, follow me, and they fled to the mountains, and Jewish warriors fled to them from every sort of angle, and this started the Maccabean Rebellion, and it was a very effective rebellion. Basically, they actually had a guerrilla warfare going on in the hills of Judea and that area, and at a certain point, they did actually defeat the Greeks, and they pushed them back, and they did take Judea back. In 165 BC, they defeated the Greeks in Israel, and they recaptured Jerusalem from the Syrians. They overthrew the Gentile rule there, and they rededicated the temple, and this is the story of Hanukkah. This is what the festival of Hanukkah celebrates. When they rededicated this temple, they got rid of all the things that Antiochus did to defile it, and they re-established the worship of the Lord there, and they had their independence. And this started the period of history known as the Hasmonean or the Maccabean dynasty. All the red there is the expansion through the various Maccabean descendants back over Israel. So you can see they did pretty much take Israel back at this point. This is the only time they'd had their independence for a long time in Israel. Now, this is where it gets really hard to follow, so I'm going to summarize it very briefly for you as we move up to the New Testament's time. Leadership basically passed between the five brothers, the original Maccabean families. You had Judas the Maccabee, Judas the Hammer, who was the warrior. He had his brothers, and slowly, when Matthias died, Judah took over. Judah died, his brother took over. And it ended up with the final brother, a man named Simon. And Simon, at this time, decided that he would not only be the king, he now decided he would also be the high priest. And you see here, things start to go bad. The Maccabean revolt is looked back on as a favourable time when the Jews won their independence, but unfortunately as we move forward through the history, they end up being just as tyrannical as those who they overthrew, which is often the way history goes with these sorts of things. So Simon, he combined the civil and religious rulership and he basically set up a new hereditary high priesthood. Now the high priest had to be from the Hasmonean family. And as we go, Simon was murdered by his son-in-law, Ptolemy, who didn't agree with this, and then another son of another member, a guy called John Hycanus, he then became the high priest. So you see this cycle, we're back in this cycle again going on. Now, it was during the reign of John Hycanus, who was one of the grandchildren of the Maccabees, that we actually first have the first mention of the Pharisees and the Sadducees with those particular names. So this is where those two groups really crystallize. The ideas of the Hellenists, the establishment, the rulers, the Greeks, the Greek accepting people, they were the Sadducees, and then the Hasidim, the Maccabees, these people who wanted to live, they were the Pharisees. Uh, that's how it went. We don't know exactly how they started, but that's what most people assume. However, by the time we get to the New Testament, we don't see the Hasmoneans in power. The Maccabees are gone. In fact, the Syrian Greeks are gone. By the time we get to the New Testament, it is the Romans who are in charge of Israel. So briefly now, I wanted to just show you how we got from the end of the Greeks to the Romans. And stay with me here. This will be the last bit of really in-depth history that we do. Next week, we're going to be starting looking at the Gospels in different ways. So the two last descendants of the Maccabees, a guy called Hycanus and Aristobulus, they were the, the final sort of great-grandchildren 
And they were basically petty. They were squabbling over the throne. They were fighting over the throne who could lead this area. Neither of them were particularly powerful at this time anymore, as you know, weakens every descendant that it goes down. A man came to them, an Idiomaean, sorry, you can see Idiomea is the region there below Judea. You may recognize that. Anyway, a man named Antipas came to one of these kings, and he said to him, I've got quite a lot of power with the, the new empire on the block, Rome, that is over in the west now, uh, and is starting to take over some of these areas. If you side with me, I'll make sure that he, they put you as king over this. He said that to Hyrcanus. His name was Antipa. And you might notice that name. That's a name we find in the New Testament. So this is our beginning of the link into the New Testament there. He came to the descendants of the Maccabees and he said, I'll help you. And he formed a deal with them. And the guy, Hyrcanus, said, yep, that sounds good. And that basically led to civil war. And they started a civil war, these two brothers in Israel. Neither of them are really strong enough to defeat the other, though. So what they decided at the instigation of this man, Antipa, they said, you need to go to Rome and you need to ask them for help. They're new, they're powerful, they've got lots of soldiers, and it's beneficial for them. So both of these brothers, trying to outdo the other one, both went to Rome. Now, you can imagine how that looked to Rome. It shows them that both of these people are weak and they can't win their own battles. So Rome basically had carte blanche then to do whatever they wanted in that area. And this is basically what happened. They went to Rome. The Roman general was a guy called Pompey at the time, and he had an army in Damascus, which was north of Israel, and he basically, he had these two people come for him for help, and as Rome, Rome, as just we've seen before, he said, who can give me the most money? One brother was able to offer more money, and that's the one that Rome decided to allow to live when they took over. Pompey took his army down, he swept through Israel. Again, a great show of power, he massacre and slaughter going on. He overthrew the city of Rome at that time. This was in 63 BC, so this is just 60 years before the time of Jesus now. He took over Israel, and then from that time on, Rome was now in charge of Israel. So Jewish independence was lost again, and they went to Rome. And Pompey, keeping his word to the this person, they put Hyrcanus as the leader of that area, the procurator of Judah. But this man, Antipas, who was really the guy, the brains behind it, he was in a movie, he'd be like the guy sneaking behind in the shadows and whispering in people's ears, do this, do this. He made sure that Rome actually realized it was him who won them this territory, and they made him procurator of Judea. Now, you might remember, Antipas had two sons, One's insignificant. The other son was put in charge as the king of Galilee and Judea, and his name was Herod the Great. Now, you might remember him. Herod the Great is, of course, the man from the New Testament. We read this. This is the time of Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one that has been born king of the Jews? You understand that question now. Herod had been just installed as king of the Jews by this Roman through all of this political back and forth that had been going on, and now he's coming and asking for the one born king of the Jews. This is the gospel period now, so that brings us up to the gospel period. We'll talk lots about Herod as we go, because he does come up a lot. He was known for his cruelty. He was known for his genius as well. He was the one who built the temple, pretty much. He was a magnificent architect. He built this very famous cliffside fortress in Masada, 
If you've been to Israel, you've almost definitely been taken up to that fortress. We did it on our last tour. That was Herod, where he would go when he needed to escape. And we actually also have the sarcophagus of Herod the Great, of Herod the Great that they found there in Israel. But this was Herod. Most people remember him from the Bible because he killed all the, Bethlehem, all the children in Bethlehem. This was his paranoia. When you see this history, we read that and we think that was, oh, that, how horrible. For him, I mean, this man, he married the last descendant of the Maccabees, the last Maccabean princess, to try and make his claim to the throne more legitimate. But after a while, he decided, I think she's trying to kill me, so he had her killed. And then he had his three sons killed that he had done by her. This was just commonplace for Herod. So when someone comes along and says, oh, we've heard there's a king in Bethlehem who's been born, he's like, right, kill all the children under two. Like, he wouldn't really have even thought much about it. This was the world that they lived in. That was Herod the Great. We'll look at him again. So we're going to leave it there with our history now. We are up to the period of the Gospels. But what I find fascinating about all of this, these are the 400 silent years. It's a time we see deep political and religious corruption. We see that contrasted often with devout acts of faithfulness, we see political manoeuvring, we see assassinations, we see betrayal, we see radicalism, we see the oppression of people groups, we see a desire for freedom, either playing out in the political or the religious sphere, often a corrupted mix of the two. We see a high priesthood religious establishment that was hopelessly corrupt, basically nothing more than criminals in league with the Roman government, and we see the common man kept poor by this elite establishment of people working in league with the ruling empire. And from this, we can sense, imagine living under that sort of a world, the desperation that people had at this time for someone to come and free them, to save them, to stop all of this. This is the thought that was going on. The Jewish people were hoping for the Messiah. Other people were hoping for another a leader like Antiochus or a political ruler or a military leader who could defeat the Roman Empire, and all these different views were melding into what we see in the New Testament world. It was an absolute mess, to be frank, at this time, and when you go through what it was, it doesn't sound too different from many of the things that we have going on in our world across the globe today. The world has really not changed because the issue is, why is the world like this? It's because of our sin and our rejection of God, and it goes on and on like this. Except, it was into this world Remember we read that verse, this was the appointed time that God said, now I'm going to send my son into the world, who is the only one who can actually break that cycle, that endless cycle of oppression, revolution, corruption, and oppression again. God sent his son to break that, but he wasn't going to do it in the way that we expected with military power. First, he was going to do it by dealing with that issue of sin, so thereby he could start a new kingdom of people one day, we read in Revelation, he will come back in power, but he'll be with this whole reborn people that we call believers who have been reborn, who will rule and reign with him. Into this darkness, the light of the world came. This is what the Gospels record. It is the greatest story of the history of the world, and it will be our focus now for the next indefinite period of time as we work our way through the Gospels. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.